Oh, yeah. Can you feel it? Not only is it week three of the podcast, but another week close to the start of school. See it coming over the Himalayas. So, this week, thinking about not only school coming, but the official start of another admission season, we're going to focus on what families need to think about as they get ready to enter into admission cycles, whether it be thinking about kindergarten on on the horizon or whether you are in an outplacement year uh, moving in middle school out here in California, that's sixth grade to seventh grade. Uh, If you're thinking about high school, eighth grade and ninth grade, and then of course, the seniors, the class of 2024, thinking about college. So, none of that, figured I would give my my top five nuggets to gear you up for entering what is effectively a gauntlet. Uh, And you gotta be prepared, just like when you give your little child that backpack, that new backpack, the new kicks and the new school gear. So here we go in no particular order. Now, keep in mind, I give these as someone who has read files for admissions. I've interviewed in admissions, both in my current position and for my alma mater. Um, I've been in the room where it happens. And most importantly, I've been the parent who's had to sit there and go through all of this and then sit and wait to get that decision on whether or not my child has been admitted to the school of their choice. So I have, say, a bit of experience on, on the subject. And these days, given that I'm about to enter this process in earnest, we are one year away from the dimple one senior year. I've been grilling all my parent friends about their college processes. So I'm equipped with that information as well. So no further ado, here we go. These are in no particular order, except perhaps the last one, which I think is the most important. I'm going to start out with having a family huddle. So at some point in the near, near future, as you think about outplacement, you want to have a gathering, a meeting of the minds. Think about who your applicant is. They're in pre-kindergarten. What is it that they'd like to do? What is their personality like? If it's middle school, what kind of aptitude have they shown in the classroom? What are the extracurriculars that they really gravitate to? You know, and to an advanced degree, the same for high school and college. Who are they? Gotta have a sense of who the applicant is and therefore what kind of environment makes the most sense. And so when you enter into that process, you want to enter into it with everybody on the same page, parents on the same page as a student. If it's a household where you know, parents are not together and it's a blended family, everybody needs to go into the process with the student at the center on the same page because schools can pick up when there is drama and they're wary of it. No school wants to bring drama in the door if they do not have to. I would say the older the kid is, the more say they get. So the dimple one, for example, given the hard work he's put in, in and out of the classroom, he largely gets to be the captain of his college process. But of course, if we're talking kindergarten, not gonna be quite the same. 
So that's number one, have a family huddle. Number two, once you have finished that huddle and you are ready to start applying, I would say get all the applications as quickly as you possibly can. So for some schools, that means you have to fill out uh, an inquiry form online and then they give you the information. Others, it just means you have to go to their website, but the quicker you can get your hands on an application and get started on it, the quicker you will finish it and get that piece of it out of the way. Because then once you have finished it, that often unlocks being able to come to campus, certainly um, in the middle and high school processes, you know, you start to get to be invited to things. Um, in the college process, there is certainly a lot of wisdom these days on applying early, whether it is in a non-binding early action uh, role or you have figured out that one and only school that you want to apply to for early decision, which tends, which tends to be binding. But again, start early because certainly for middle and high schools, in most places, you're looking at an early deadline of December, you know, a later deadline like the end of January. And the quicker you can get the application out of the way, the more you can focus on if you need test prep, if you uh, need to get to campus for events and all those different types of things. So number one, huddle. Number two, start early. And I would even add to that, finish as quickly as you can with your applications. At least your part. It may take some time for recommendations and such, but at least the, the basic part of the application you want to get done as quickly as possible. Number three, and then we're going to take a little bit of a break for you to digest it all. Keep up. Number three, chart a schedule that makes sense for your family. So again, let's say, and I usually recommend you want to come down to a top three of schools. College may be a little bit more expansive, but you know, for, for people that I talk to who are looking at middle and high school, say pick a top three. You're going to have at least one event per month at each school. So now that's three events per month that you are now going to have to juggle and make time for. So if you can chart it, if you can chart that on your on your calendar, the better off you will be. You can think ahead about you know when you're free, prioritize, but really chart that schedule, figure out on the college in which campuses are must see. You really want to make sure to the best of your ability, you can get to campus because you want to have a feel for what that's like, what it feels like, what it looks like. That helps make the decision, helps you get a sense of whether you, it will be a fit or not. So to the degree that you can do that, the better off that you will be. And I would say if you start to plan that schedule, and you realize that time is really going to be an issue, you don't have as much time, you may want to consider enlisting the help, you know, what we call community-based organizations. So I think of things nationally like Oliver, uh, here in California, we have the Independent School Alliance, which has been doing it for years, newer organizations like uh, Private School Access. These organizations are designed to really help families uh, streamline the process. They for example, have common applications. You fill out one application, it goes to all the schools. 
Um, they also have people who can help you kind of narrow down your list so that you may not have to go to all the schools, but you can have some intel on all of the schools. So that's three things right there. Let me take a quick breather and then we'll get into our last two. Be right back. All right, so we're back. We have two more nuggets on admissions that I want to put in the membrane. Hopefully you are definitely taking your notes, thinking about these things, because these are things that I talk about with people all the time, every year, um, as we get into the start of school and then the start of admissions. It really creates a, a, a double excitement for me as an educator because not only am I meeting new students who've been admitted to school, but I'm meeting new families who are aspiring um, to come to school. So it's almost like a preview. All right. So the fourth one, and again, these are in no particular order. They do have some logical order that I'm sure you could figure out, but I just was going off of kind of what makes sense to me. The next one is you start coming to campus. We talked about visiting, charting that schedule. You want to make sure that you have conversations, press the flesh, uh, meet with as many important people on campus as you possibly can. Again, schools really go out of their way to create a, an admissions calendar where they are opening up the campus at many different points, offering touch points, as they call them, to meet families. So, you know, my spot, one of the most in, uh enjoyable and relaxing is homecoming where we not only have full carnival going on but a full day of athletics so you can check off a number of different boxes at once you can meet admissions folks you can meet athletics folks so that's just one example and, and many schools do all kinds of different things to showcase their uh, institutions so in those moments do not be shy in you know striking up a conversation with any administrators that you can meet, certainly the head of admissions to start because that person, you know, is ultimately going to be the gatekeeper is going to call the shot, yay or nay. Uh, but if you can meet the head of school, also a bonus, if you can meet a division head. So if you're applying to a middle school, the head of a middle school, if you're applying to an upper a high school, the head of the upper school or the high school, you want to have those touch points because ultimately when those people go into a room, they are going to talk about an applicant. And, you know, if you can have many favorable outlooks on an applicant, the stronger the application is going to be uh, beyond just what is on the paper application. And that, and that conversation that you have with those people can be not just you know, introducing yourself, but you can start to ask questions. You can start to get a philosophical feel. You can start to uh, get a sense of who they are, because the more you understand that, the more you have a sense of if the school itself is going to be a fit for your family. Because when you go into a school, I don't care if it's public, private, whatever the case may be, if it's outside of your home, you go into a school, you become part of that community. And you have to decide as a family, you know, no matter what the academics are, are you comfortable being in that community. So meet the key people. And then finally, 
And most importantly, and again, this crosses all the levels that you may be thinking about in terms of admissions. Once you've gathered all the data, you've met people, you finished application, you have searched and scoured the web, you have talked to your friends who go to the school or people who you've met who go to the school, you've talked to student ambassadors, parent ambassadors, you've gone to games, you've gone to homecoming, you've seen plays, you have attended musical performances, you feel like you have all the information, really have another huddle and figure out the best fit for the applicant. And it can't just be about name. There are schools in every place that are considered the quote unquote best, but if it's not the best fit for your child, then it ain't the best. Yes, there are schools who have noted reputations and uh, resources, but if they can't be in, in partnership with your family for the good of your child, then it's not the place that they need to be. I can't stress enough how important it is to find the right fit for your child. And at the college level, what is, the, what is that campus that lights up your student and makes them feel at home, it makes you feel at home, and you're comfortable putting your child in um, that community's hands? You know, at the high school and middle school level, what is the community you feel comfortable being a part of for four to six years? Do you feel like there are ways for you to inject yourself into that community and share your talents and resources? Because at the end of the day, without strong families, these all schools all crumble. So do you feel like the school deserves what you bring to the table? It is very much a partnership. So I am going to stop there. Hopefully we generate some discussion this week around this because again, tis the season. I'm prepared, I'm ready. My mind is sharp. I was back on campus this week. School has effectively started for me. I started meeting new seventh graders this week. So I'm ready. Looking forward to another year as a professional. So hopefully we get some questions. I'll be happy to answer them this week. But coming up, a bonus. I'm proud to be bringing and sharing with you my genius sister, Jennifer Rivers. Be talking with her coming up after this next break. All right, we are excited to welcome into Office Hours this week, my very own sister. But this is not just a nepotism play. She happens to be the director of college and career counseling at Crystal Ray High School in Philadelphia, our hometown. So Jennifer Rivers, welcome to Taking Notes with your own brother, John Carroll. How are you? I am good. How are our nieces, my nieces, your daughters? Uh, the, the nieces are good, thriving. Alive you know, still? Alive still, sleeping right now, but they're alive. Excellent. So we will not make too much noise to wake them up, but yeah. I appreciate you taking the time. It is a benefit of the Carroll family. 
that when it comes to education expertise, you do not have to go far. So I am glad to be able to pick your brain for a few minutes. So my first question for you is given all this happened um, in, in when it relates to college admissions, uh, students for fair admissions versus Harvard, what's your approach now to counseling students through this upcoming um, admissions process? I think um, the short kind of um, answer that I can give um, and then kind of go into more detail if you want me to is really um, to really kind of put an emphasis on working with students to not only make sure that their college lists are aligned with their academic profiles. Um, so really kind of what we say in college admission spaces, you know, making sure that their list is kind of a, um, those schools on their list are good fit for them, both academically, socially, financially, all the things um, that are really going to support their persistence through the graduation. But more importantly, on the admission side, making sure that their essays are solid. So they have really strong college essays. Um, what the Supreme Court decision did was that it you know, while it banned race as a standalone factor in the college admissions process, it didn't say that you couldn't mention it in your application. So not, not saying like, you know, because I'm Black, you should accept me, but it, it's not to say that you can't still tell your story. So I think that making sure that students are telling a story um, that is going to be compelling and really give the college admissions team a good picture of who they are and what they can bring to their campus is really going to be important. And so let me just pull on one thing you said there that I thought was interesting in terms of the ability to write about your experience in your essay while not being able to, you know, kind of self-identify in the app as you used to be. Do you think that in your profession is going to become a, uh, a trend that, you know, counselors are going to be advising students to make their um, essays basically, you know, kind of a self-identification piece, or, you know, is it going to be that they're going to continue to just kind of write about uh, experiences that move the needle? Like, is it going to necessarily going to be the case that black and brown kids and students of color are going to have to identify or are they going to have choice? What What are you thinking in terms of that? I think that our students can still have a choice. Um, I can say this because um, for my entire career, I've worked with um, traditionally marginalized, like students from traditionally marginalized communities. So basically um, black and brown students, um, low income first gen students. And what I've always said to them and the thing that I learned very early on was that, you know, telling your story is really important, right? So you can't necessarily separate like who you are from your story. Um, so I think that's going to continue to be important, whether you're, you know, I don't, you know, whoever you are, whatever, however you identify, I think that that's going to continue to be important. Um, I think that a lot of students may struggle because they feel like they have to, they have to submit an essay that is going to be like inherently sad. Like we're trying to win some sort of like, you know, um, I don't know, we're trying to win some sort of deficit Olympics. And that's not what what we should be coaching students to do. I think that 
your story is going to be your story. And that's really going to tease itself out to an admissions counselor. I can say that because I have worked in college admissions. So I understand it from both sides, right? Both helping students to put their essays together, but then also being the recipient <laughs> or receiving these essays and having to review them. I think that... Um, you know, whatever your young person feels is compelling, I think that that's what you should encourage them to write about. Um, I think that identity is always going to tease itself out because it's, it's so much a part of who we are. And particularly if you're a person of color, um, it is inherently a part of who you are, right? So you shouldn't necessarily feel shamed in sharing that. And one more thing I'd just love to hear you hypothesize on, like, you work in a school where clearly there is a team of people who can help students put that polish on an essay. Mm-hmm. How do you think it's going to go for you know kids in massive public schools who are now going to be faced with this and maybe not having the same kind of resources to put that touch on it to help and, and have the guidance um, in crafting such an essay? Sure. I think that it's going to be really important for students that may not have may not be in high schools where they have a lot of resources or supports around, you know, getting guidance through the college application process and the college admissions process um, to really connect with those admissions offices. It's not to say that those individuals are going to necessarily help you write your essay. But a lot of times there are different um, workshops, there are different resources that those institutions do offer to their applicants, Um, particularly those that are still trying to figure out a way that they can legally. um, So it's like adhering to the law while still being able to bring in a diverse class. Um, So I'll give you an example. I um, and my associate director participated in a um, workshop that the admissions office that your alma mater actually just did last week on college essays. So I thought that that was, um, I thought that that was pretty um, significant um, given, um, given the decision and given, you know, like after the decision came out, it was like I received an email from the institution, I guess, that they sent to all the college counselors that they have in their databases. Um, saying that, you know, we have to, you know, this this was, you know, this is not something that we we necessarily welcome, but to be um pretty much to be in a be to basically to be in alignment with the law, we have to reevaluate our current admissions practices, right? So that's a kind of savvy strategy to say, like, okay. These are some of the things that we know that you're going to be supporting your students with. And these are some of the kind of strategies that you should probably consider working into your process as you're working with them. So it's kind of a roundabout way of basically still being able to reach out and have touch and really have um, the opportunity to admit um, students that, you know, may not necessarily have the same opportunities as their white suburban counterparts. Yeah. And it's funny, we've been talking on you know the podcast about, you know, how schools will have to pivot um, and think about ways to reach communities. So salute to University of Pennsylvania for thinking about that and being out in front. So good to know my alma mater is doing its part. I want to pivot a little bit, speaking of my alma mater, right, because we grew up in a household where we were certainly uh, encouraged, pushed, held to a standard of shooting for 
you know, the highest academic places that we could get to. When you think about the families that you deal with now, what's different about their approach versus maybe how we um, were were taught to look at the college process? Like I remember mommy telling me, you know, in August of my junior year, I want you to apply to 20 schools and have it done. And that was kind of it. So, so I think, you know, for us as Carol children, again, that expectation was really high. Um, I'm chuckling because I kind of remember the similar conversation. Um, you need to do this. And that's pretty much the end of that. Um, oh, and, and by I the think- way, no college counselor, right? No hire no, no, person no. to help us. This is like, no, you go do it. Find all the stuff, Just all the things, and, and I'll see you at the end. Make yeah. sure it's done. Yep, and I'm here. You know, let me know what you need. So I think, I think, um, I think that really came from a place of our parents really, you know, they were confident that they had put the necessary mechanisms in place right, to facilitate that process, you know, so there was an investment in private schools, being very strategic about where we went to school in general, and, you know, being mindful of who we were as, you know, as people, right, but also as learners. Um, So I think that that approach, I think that approach probably worked well, because of the resources that were there, right, to support what we were doing, but then also how we were socialized, right? So I think, you know, growing up, I don't know too many of our friends whose parents either did not have a college degree mm-hmm. um, or did not set that expect that same expectation of their of their children that they were going to college, right? So I think it was it was all about that expectation and socialization. So just by kind of like just by association, you had that push, not just from, you know, mom and dad, but also from um, from the community, from the village. And so I think that that approach worked because of those different components, right? And there were different factors, like we were involved in a ton of things growing up or whatever. So I think that that, expo- you know, that exposure kind of like pushed that motivation, Um and really didn't make that seem like it was an insurmountable task. I think with the students that I've worked with throughout the course of my career, many of them, I mean, it, it still saddens me that in 2023, I, I'm working with students that are still first generation, not just college, but even first generation high school graduates, right? So another conversation for another day, but just to kind of make light of education attainment in the communities that I that I primarily have worked with over you know 20 years at this point. Um, so families are very different. I think families are very trusting of the schools to kind of do it. So I work at a school that is unapologetic in its approach about being college prep, you know, and every student is going to college, right? And that's not a terrible thing, right? Um, and I think parents are drawn to that mission because, you know, they know that, a college degree is going to be a huge difference maker in the lives of their young person, but then also to their families, right? And so they they get them to Crystal Ray and it's kind of like, there's this feeling that they have arrived. So they're gonna come to the school and everything is gonna be taken care of. What I'm trying to do, and I've only, I'm going into my third year at Crystal Ray is really to lock arms with the families because for me, I recognize, I've recognized over my career really that if I don't do that, if my team doesn't do that, 
we can get them into college. So I don't think that, the, like, we don't have an access issue, right? right? We can get them into school, but there that conversation that has to happen between, like, let's say February and May 1st, when they have to make a decision, is very difficult if the family hasn't been brought along on the whole entire journey, if the family really does not understand what's happening, right? So I think that, and I say that because not only am I working largely with first-gen students, I'm also working with a lot of students that are first generation in this country. Some of them are undocumented, some of them are not, but they are the primary kind of like, while their parents are their parents, some some of them come from households where English is not their first language, right? So the parents' primary language is not English. And so they're they're pretty much responsible for a lot of what happens with that family on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. So the idea of that young person then leaving that household is like, yeah, it's a non-starter. So it's like, yeah, you can go to college, but you can't go outside of Philly. And so for... You know, if I don't kind of have that conversation at the beginning of the year with parents and families about kind of like what this is and kind of what the opportunities are and really start to form those relationships, those conversations in the spring get very difficult for many reasons, right? I have tons of stories I can share, but bottom line it is is that I definitely have to approach it from a holistic lens. Like I can't just work with that young person. I have to work with their families. So unlike with us, it was like, you go and do this and then kind of tap me in when you need me to either help you with your application fees or your FAFSA form. I need them to be a part of it from the beginning. Right. And even with us kind of being set off alone in our admissions process, there was at no point during our schooling, no school that we went to was unaware of who our parents were. Mm -hmm. Right. So it definitely underscores that, you know, like you say, because of first generation situations, socioeconomic status, whatever the case may mm-hmm. be, if you don't have that partnership with family, it does create some unique um, situations, which therefore mean the schools have to, you know, implement some structures to make sure those students are supported all the way around. And I think that's something that resonates, you know, public, private, no matter your school uh, format. I want to pivot a little bit. We talked about my alma mater. I want to talk about yours, the mm-hmm. Mecca HU, my sister, a proud bison. Shout out on the resurgence of your swim team, by the way. Yes. Um, Coach Askew doing big things down there. Yes. And I'm curious, given stuff like that, right? So Howard ends up on the cover of Sports Illustrated with the swim team. The Howard Band performs at the inauguration. You know, these milestones, these moments, you know, for the culture have really driven up um, application numbers, right? But then we've seen where, you know, the infrastructure to receive that greater interest hasn't always necessarily matched up. So I'm curious where you are in terms of that moment, right? The the renaissance and the interest of, you know, HBCUs, um, but then the struggle that's kind of always been there that, the, you know, the infrastructure and support for them doesn't always match. So where, what are you feeling about that as a proud alum? So I, I listen, I tell students all the time, because of course I have students that I work with and they're like, 
I want to go to an HBCU. And I'm like, you know, I support it. You know, I'm very like, I'm unapologetic in my support of an HBCU. Students come into my office and know it's, you know, it's Howard all day, right? So even though I'm getting ready to have another degree from Temple, uh, it's Howard, right? So I think for me, it's not so much, it's not a struggle. It's more so because it's kind of like, I already know what it is, right? And we can go into a long conversation about why it is what it is, you know, when we talk about like structural racism and, you know, even the need for HBCUs. But, and so I, I try not to approach it from a deficit standpoint. I try to make sure that um, students really understand the complexities that are HBCUs. So there are wonderful benefits to going to an HBCU, to ultimately graduating from HBCU, because no matter what school you go to, it's like ultimately, you know, I want you to graduate, right? Um, so there are a lot of benefits to that, but understand kind of like what you're signing up for and who you are as a student, right? So while I appreciate the resurgence of HBCUs and the interest in it, I know for our generation, like I was drawn to HBCUs largely because of a different world, right? And, you know, what I saw wasn't. on Shout television. Shout out Yvette Lee Bowser. And, right, and- yes. <laughs> Listen, um, so I was largely drawn to it because of that in the images that were portrayed in that television show. And then what I, and, and the people that I came to know that were products of HBCUs. Like, I think um, somebody probably needs to do it. Maybe this station has been done or is being done on this, but really the impact of like Chain University on just like, you know, the education of, young people in the city of Philadelphia between like 1960 and and maybe even 1999. I don't know. Or, even a, or even a dissertation on the link between Cheney graduates and the economy of Philadelphia. I mean, right. you know, we grew up amongst many, right? right? And so the black middle class, you could argue, is largely built in Philly off of HBCU graduates. Absolutely. Cheney and Lincoln, right? So I think that there's a lot that has been contributed, right? So we don't want to dismiss any of that. But as you said, the structure and infrastructure, right? So I think that it's important that young people and their families. So while I'm grateful to what has happened pretty much like, you know, since 2020, and really I would argue before that, because I think what drew a lot of, what was drawing a lot of students to HBCUs was, you know, the election of President Trump. Right. And the polarization in our nation, you know, around race that was, you know, that he, you know, happily seemed to want to stir up. And so I think that um, I think what students need to understand is like, you know, understand the school and what it is and also understand what it is that you need. Right. As a learner. Right. Um, I tell students all the time, I didn't decide that I wanted to go to Howard until my senior fall of my senior year. Right. Like I went to homecoming and that was it. And it wasn't necessarily just homecoming. It was the idea that I really felt at home there when I stepped on that campus. And it was a feeling I hadn't felt when I went on to any other college campus. So I think it's understanding like what the space is right in context and who you are as a student and what you need as a learner to be successful. I think it's also understanding that there's more than five HBCUs in this country. Because a lot of the young people that I work with, it's like they identify Howard Hampton, Morehouse Spellman, and maybe FAM, and then the bonus is A&T, right? Mm. So 
they, you know, those are the only schools that they they want to go to, or they say they want to go to, and they apply too heavily, which is great for them. It's wonderful for those schools, but there are a ton of schools. There's about 103 HBCUs right. now, yep. and so there are a ton of schools that don't have the same name kind of like recognition, but they give out money because I know I hear a lot of students say, oh, I got into Howard or I got into Hampton, but they didn't give me any money. Well, did you try to apply to Claflin? Did you apply to Winston-Salem State? Did you apply to North Carolina Central? Did you learn about what their programs are? Because believe it or not, a lot of these lesser known schools have more competitive programs than some of the the top tier, quote unquote, HBCUs or even like top tier PWIs. And you didn't even know because no one like you didn't get a chance to maybe learn about that. So I think that it becomes it becomes more important that we leverage, um, you know, the opportunity to go on to college campuses Another thing that we didn't have when we were going through our process was social media mm. and the internet, right? We had to go and look up stuff in books or we had to rely on snail mail or we had to like call schools to get information and college tours were really important because it was like, how else were you really going to be able to see? And so now you have you have the internet, you have social media. I tell students all the time, use your phones, you're on your phone all the time. Use social media for good and not for evil. Use it to your benefit. Follow these colleges that you think you want to go to. And and even like if you're saying, I just want to explore HBCUs, there are a lot of different social media pages about just that just promote HBCUs. So you can learn about the other, you know, 100 that you didn't know about before. So I think that it's really important that we, you know, as we try to raise the profile and we try to really kind of move students to options that are going to work for them, right? And and I emphasize the work for them. We have to really get strategic in our approaches around how we do that. Love it. Lots of gems there. And I'm going to have to like post up all these different uh, resources that you uh, noted in terms of getting to know not only the HBCU landscape, but the college landscape in general, because I think the key gem there is, you know, the social media piece really does um, take your access um, to a new level. Mm-hmm. I'm also going to do a quiz, maybe even give out prizes, see who can name more than five HBCUs. Mm-hmm. That's always fun to see when it happens at work. Last thing for you, you talk so eloquently about, you know, the difference when you are coming into this school year, when kids start coming into your office, what's going to be your go-to piece of advice for even how they start to identify a school that they love? All right. So the good news for me is that that's already happened. Oh, because, because you've already, already given some advice already. Yeah, we've already done it. So, you know, I have, we do programming for our rising seniors at the very end of their junior year. We take them on a college campus for three days, two nights. And their 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 mission is to work on their college list and their college essays. So we did that for the second time in a row this year. So already having some of those conversations with students. And I think for me, the biggest piece of advice that I give them is, you know, as you are going through this process, it's going to be essential. It's going to be critical that you assemble your village. Right. So going back to the conversation about parents and families. 
as much the same way that you come in and have conversations with myself or my colleagues about what it is that you're thinking about and the schools that you're interested in, have those same conversations with your family members and, and also your parents, right? Um, because they're the ones that are going to be supporting you over the next four or five or six years that you're on this journey to get your degree. And so you need to be bringing them along on that journey. And beyond that, you know, more importantly, if they're kind of clued in at the beginning, it's going to make the journey that much more easier for you. So even, you know, through the college application process, right? Um, so it's important that you that, that those conversations be had so everyone is very clear on what the plan is so that when there are resources that need to be brought to bear, folks can start to really jump into action. And it's not something that has to be done at the last minute. People can already, they're already planning around what it is that you're going to need um, around support and help. Um, the thing that I remember very vividly that our mother did, um, I know when I was in my senior year, she was very strategic in making sure that every gift purchase that I, that I received in addition to her buying things throughout the year, every little gift purchase, whether it was for Christmas or my birthday, it was something that I can use when I went to school, right? So by the time you I got, got luggage too, right? I know I got luggage. Yeah, I did yeah. it. I got except luggage. for Christmas. I had trunks, you know, and those trunks got full with soap. And, you know, because I slammed, you know, I had my special shampoo and my condition, you know, like I had all this, like I didn't need a trunk party. Because it was like my mother and father made sure, you know, daddy bought my computer. So it was like I had though I had all the things before it was even time for me to go, before I even graduated from high school. So I think that, you know, as we and particularly as we think about how expensive it is to go to school, that's like now it's it's even more critical that those things kind of be put in place, like those plant that planning conversation starts so that people are not having to make really hard decisions come the spring. Yeah, I love the village piece. You know, I, I think about our friend Carlin from mm -hmm. uh, from Germantown Friends and how her son became a viral star. And, you know, he, I consider myself part of the village, even though I'm across the country. And, you know, being able to put in on, on his journey to Morehouse has been a thing. So, you know, village is a big thing these days. And with the tools of social media, you know, Cash App, Venmo, whatever the case may be, you can really, you know, be a blessing to somebody who's not even uh, local. So I love all those things. My sister, I knew this was going to be a win having you on. It is amazing to have a sister who, you know, has these things because you can counsel your brother uh, who is now also in the process as a parent, you know, keep me sane. So just, you know, be aware that that's coming because we're like knee deep in it uh, these days. Uh, Crystal Ray is lucky to have you. There's a reason Merrick Garland had to pull up because you guys have something special going on Listen. over there. So mm -hmm. keep it going and I will see you soon. All right. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to get right into the Dean's office this week. I want to thank my sister again for coming on. I knew she spread gems. I hope you enjoyed those. I'm going to blast out Vivek Ramaswamy. He needs to come visit the dean's office for his comments regarding Juneteenth in his speech where he was trying to make the point about 
election day being a holiday, he felt the need to say that in order to make room for election day, we need to get rid of one of the quote unquote useless holidays like Juneteenth that we made up. This is particularly disturbing because this is coming from a person of color, a person of Indian descent. And so in a time when it's so important, especially for someone running for president, to try and hold the connective tissue of this country together, Mr. Ramaswamy decided that he'd rather just sound dog whistles for the sake of cheap political points. Points that he's not going to get, to be honest. So it really is just a lose-lose strategy. He makes the country that much more divisive and he's not even going to gain anything from it. I can only imagine, you know, what the response would be like if you called attention or belittled the notion of the Indian struggle as they fought against British colonialism. So, Mr. Ramaswamy needs to make a visit. Also needing to make a visit to the Dean's office of the 17-year-old killer of O'Shea Sibley, the Philadelphia native who was killed at a gas station while voguing and dancing to Beyonce, of all people, Queen Bee. The dehumanization of LGBTQ community members needs to stop. And this is just another example of what can happen when they're seen as something other than human. Hope this young person is held to the highest count in New York. Speaking of accountability, on the honor roll this week, the governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker, who signed a number of bills into law to try and curb discrimination, but most notably the Racism Free School Act. According to this law, schools will be required to create policies prohibiting discrimination and harassment of students due to race. This applies to all schools in the state. Schools will also be held to account if they fail to hold people accountable by disciplinary action when there is a civil rights violation. This is very important because hate speech instances do not stop if there is not a strong deterrent. So salute to Governor Pritzker and the sponsor of the bill, Maurice West, for doing something to make sure that that is made standard in the state. That's all I got for this week. We had a lot going on. We're a little long. Hope you enjoyed it all. I will see you next week on Taking Notes with John Carroll. The views expressed by John Carroll and his guest in the preceding podcast are solely that of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers, companies, or other associated parties. Take no!